Hello again, everyone. Welcome to the eighth episode of the Systems Science in Public Health podcast series. I'm your host, Petra Meyer. I'm a professor of public health at the University of Glasgow and a director of the Cypher Consortium. Cypher is a large consortium of academics and policy partners who use system science evidence to inform policies related to health and well-being. In my podcast series, I'm speaking to lots of colleagues to find out how they got involved with system science research. Joining us via Zoom today is Magda Serra, a professor and director of the Center for Opioid Epidemiology and Policy at New York University. Magda's research focuses on the effects that policies have on substance misuse trends and on the ways the urban context shapes violence. Magda, it's wonderful to be able to welcome you here today. I think it's fair to say that you're more of epidemiologist by background. Can I start by asking how you got interested in systems modeling approaches? Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much for, for inviting me to be here today. It's really a pleasure to be here. Um, I initially um, became interested in system science in, I think, um, 2007, um, when the interest in integrating system science into epidemiology, I think, really first started. Um, and that was when I was doing a postdoctoral fellowship at the University of Michigan. Um, and uh, so I, I first attended a two-day course on system science at the University of Michigan, and I was really excited about um, the potential for system science, uh, particularly as a social epidemiologist, um, and given my interests and in how, you know, fact, social factors at multiple levels influence health. Um, I then took a course on uh, system science, particularly focusing on agent-based modeling, uh, which was a summer week-long course sponsored by the NIH. And that really uh, catapulted my, um, my interest and my skills in working with system science and particularly with agent-based modeling. And really what excited me about system science was the, the potential to use this as a tool to help stakeholders think through different kinds of intervention alternatives uh, that they would need to achieve their, uh, their stated goals. At that time, my, my interest was really in violence. And so really the stated goal around violence reduction. Um, and so I, I, I saw system science and particularly agent-based modeling as a way to test out different types of alternative interventions before one, before stakeholders actually invested millions of dollars in implementing them, right? So that we could get a quantitative prior on what the potential trade-offs might be from different kinds of intervention approaches. That's really interesting. Can I ask whether you see any tensions between traditional epidemiology and systems modeling? Yeah, I, I do. I think, at, especially at first, I would say now, you know, there's been a lot of writing back and forth about the potential um, complementarity of epidemiology and system science, and I really see a role for both. But I guess the, inter the inherent um, tension is that with epidemiology, we're really interested in identification or isolation of a cause. Uh, for uh, for health uh, that either through experimental manipulation or if that's not possible through observation. But with systems modeling, we're really thinking about uh, modeling 
a much more complex system, right? And we're, we're thinking about modeling dynamic interactions between multiple units within and across levels through nonlinear and feedback processes. And so it's, it's, it's very difficult to do all of that within this, um, within the clean, uh, perhaps traditional epi study design. I think, you know, the, the, the three, I would say that there, there are three real areas um, of uh, that we need to work through and think about when we're integrating system science into epidemiology. Um, the first is that when we're developing these very complex models, um, we often have to make very strong assumptions about uh, the probabilities that that we're you know we're feeding into the model, the disease probabilities, the behavioral probabilities, uh, if we're interested in networks, the structure and the function of networks and the dynamics of disease. Um, and so that often means putting data together from multiple and disparate data sets, right? And, and so there's a lot, there's a big challenge there in terms of calibration uh, and being very careful about the assumptions we're making about the data sources that we're using. Um, and then that also leads to the concern about bias, um, because so, for example, when we're simulating the effects of interventions, in order to simulate that, we are feeding into the model an intervention effect that was taken from a different population, where perhaps the confounding structures are different, right? And so we need to think about how transportable or how translatable, right, are these parameters that we're feeding into these models and what implications could that have uh, for confounding? And then I think really this calls the, the, the real third and central challenge is just validation. Um, that is that when we are making all of these assumptions about putting in data from multiple different data sets, assumptions about quote unquote intervention effects from different populations, right? We need to think about uh, a very careful way to validate uh, the model that we're building uh, so, that, so, that, so that it actually represents what we want it to represent and it allows us to answer the questions uh, that we want it to answer. Uh, but I think that there's a lot of work being done in thinking carefully through calibration and validation um, and in that way being able to use system science as a tool within epidemiology. I think it's fair to say you're particularly interested in substance misuse and violence prevention policies. How does systems modeling come into your work and what are some of the key questions um, that you can address with these methods? In, in my work, it really comes into three areas. First of all, I think that system science approaches can help us think about the mechanisms and the feedback processes that give rise to are disease processes of interest. Um, so for example, as I, as you mentioned, I'm interested in substance use and violence and um, really within substance use, I'm particularly interested in opioids. Um, and so for example, there was uh, one uh, paper that I really enjoyed uh, reading by Wakeland et al, which tried to test out different mechanisms that gave rise to the observed patterns of uh, prescription opioid misuse and transition to heroin. And by building this complex model, they were actually able to, um, and making different assumptions about the feedback processes that give rise to the observed patterns, they were able to figure out, you know, where should you intervene, right? Um, and so understanding mechanisms 
um, and how they give rise to a disease process can help you understand how to intervene and why perhaps intervention approaches might fail. So that's really one area. I think also related to that, the second area is that it can help us think about what types of interventions might be most effective at addressing our uh, problem of interest. Uh, so for example, we have a, an agent-based model that we've developed of counties in New York State, and we're using it to test, to test different interventions around distribution of um, naloxone to reverse overdoses and uh, initiation into treatment for opioid use disorder and testing out these uh, strategies as ways to reduce overdose rates in New York State counties. And so we're doing that to help counties figure out, you know, how much do you have to invest in these interventions um, in order to bring about your desired reduction in overdose. So I think that's a really uh, promising area. And then the third area where I think um, I, I find it really helpful is in um, disease processes where social networks and spatial contexts play a big role um, and that spatial contexts and social networks might modify the impact of interventions. Um, and so for example, remember there, there was one paper uh, by Keen et al. that looked at uh, the impact of naloxone distribution and overdose rates. And so they used this model, this agent-based model, to test out well, different assumptions around secondary distribution of naloxone through networks. So how could different assumptions about you know, how naloxone was distributed through networks, uh, how could that impact the effectiveness of the intervention? So I thought that was a really cool example of the kind of potential of these uh, approaches to ask these more complicated questions beyond does the intervention work or not, but really try to understand how could the intervention be propagated through the social network or through the social context. Of all the models that you've been involved in building, do you have a, a favorite? Um, maybe was there one that you particularly enjoyed building or one that was able to show something that's uh, either helpful or uh, particularly unexpected? Yeah, so there was actually one model that was actually a pretty simple model. It was one of the first agent-based models that we developed uh, for New York City, where we looked at uh, the impact of different interventions on violence in New York City. And one in one of the analyses we did with this model, we were interested in testing universal versus targeted approaches to violence prevention. Um, in order to reduce racial ethnic inequalities and violence. Um, and so what we looked at as the intervention was promoting neighborhood collective efficacy. Uh, that is uh, the collective process of neighbors being able to work together to achieve a common goal. And so the literature had ta has talked a lot about collective efficacy and its potential role as a protective um, process that could 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 be could protect communities um, against violence, and so we wanted to test out. Well, what if we, you know, what if we promote implement an intervention and has been implemented in some places to increase collective efficacy in neighborhoods? Could that bring about reductions in violence, and could it bring about uh, racial ethnic inequalities and violence? And what was interesting was that we saw that um, rates of violence overall did decline. Uh, when we simulated this increase in collective efficacy, but um, racial ethnic inequalities were not altered at all. 
Um, and so digging into the model, um, we realized that that's because the collective efficacy intervention primarily benefited uh, pe white people, um, right? And so, and neighborhoods where white people lived. Um, and so, and digging more into the model, we, so, so then that led us to think about, okay, so, so what is it that's driving this unequal impact by race? And so then we thought, okay, it might be racial, racial residential segregation, right? The fact that people, white people and black people are systematically selected because of different policies into different neighborhoods. Um, and so the nice thing about this model is that we were actually able to test that out, something you could never test out with real data because you can't actually go and, you know, in a short time span, change patterns of residential segregation. And so with this model, we were able to show that the only way to really reduce racial ethnic inequalities and violence was by shift by reducing racial residential segregation. So I think it was a really nice illustration of the power of these models to ask questions that we can't ask answer with real data. And that can really um, help us then identify what are the types of important policy relevant questions that we should be asking, and then eventually being able to test with real data down the road. How do you see the relationship between a computational model in the way that you've just described, and maybe more qualitative system thinking and participatory approaches? Have you used both? Yeah, that's a great question. I haven't used the more qualitative uh, model building processes, but I, I see a great complementarity between the two. And so I would think, for example, like the group-based model building processes um, as, a, as a great way, to, uh, for example, to map out what stakeholders think um, about what's going on, right? With a say a health problem of interest, you could map on out uh, what might be uh, the mechanisms driving that disease process, um, what might be feasible points for intervention, what might be barriers and facilitators. Um, and then I think once we've, we've collected information about that in a much more compre comprehensive way, we can then move to the quantitative um, a model simulation process by, you know, perhaps uh, focusing on on one specific, starting out focusing on one specific piece of that more complex picture and trying to think about, okay, well, what are the questions that we can answer here? Uh, what is the data that we have to be able to actually simulate that? Um, and and to start testing out, um, you know, some some quantitative questions, but informed by this qualitative process. And then it could be, um, I, I think it can be a feedback process, right? So again, for example, with, with more quantitative model uh, simulations, for example, we might want to simulate the impact of an intervention, uh, but then we might want to know, okay, well, what barriers and facilitators might affect intervention impact, right? So we could do this more qualitative model building process to understand what those might be and then use those to build in to the simulation model. So I think it's this iterative process. And I think that would be ideal uh, because it builds in stakeholder input and it brings a much richer picture to the simulation model than, than you would have otherwise. If funding was no issue, what would a systems modeling project you'd really like to do look like? 
That's a great question. I think I, I would really love to be able to, um, to do a modeling project in collaboration with local stakeholders um, where it was an iterative modeling and randomized controlled trial project. That is um, where with stakeholders, we were able to identify an intervention that the data and our partners thought could be a promising way to address a specific question. Um, then we were actually able to test that out in a randomized uh, community-based trial. And then we were able to collect data from the trial and feed back the findings from the trial into the model to be able to first test out, you know, where are productions accurate? Is the, to what extent is the model valid? Um, and adjust the model assumptions accordingly and uh, and then make a, a new prediction. And, and so I think that that's really the ideal way in which we could use modeling is that a combination of modeling and primary data collection with actual experimental manipulation um, of an intervention. Um, and I think, you know, that, that way we can really engage stakeholders, they can really see the value um, of a specific um, intervention, we can think in a more complex way uh, about what the intervention approaches might be, but it also helps us validate um, our model and make sure that what we're actually predicting reflects what, what we wanted it to predict. That's a really interesting way around uh, when you mentioned sort of that integration between RCT and modeling. I was expecting you to say sort of that you do a model to inform the design of the RCT, but you're actually talking about it the other way around where where you use the RCT data that, to then, um, you, you know, inform your model building process and, uh, and, and test the model against that. So that's... That's interesting um, uh, to hear it uh, that way around. I think that's quite unusual. Um, but yes, I hope you get funding for that project. I would love to see the results there. So as a final question, maybe um, I can ask you, how can we as academics help policy partners deal with the uncertainties in their complex systems? That, yes, that's a, that is a, a, an important and huge challenge. Um, I know I, we we work through that in one of our projects, this project modeling, um, developing an agent-based model of New York State counties um, to reduce overdose rates. Um, that's actually a project, um, it's funded by the NIH um, and it's led by um, Dr. Nabila Basel at Columbia University, but it's done in close collaboration with local stakeholders. Um, and it's really where we're building these models um, and putting model results up in a dashboard uh, that the local county authorities can, can see. Um, and so their communication with local stakeholders has really been uh, very important. Um, so what we do is we present regularly to county stakeholders. We present on uh, what agent-based modeling is, um, what what it is we're trying to answer, uh, what it can and cannot tell you, uh, to to be able to get um, stakeholder buy-in into what we're doing, and to be able to ensure that the model is answering the questions they want to answer. Uh, so that's that's the first piece. I really I think it's really just 
communi continuous communication from the beginning about what the model is, what it represents, what it can answer, and what it cannot answer. Once, um, then once we actually, um, and then we also remain in communication as we fit the model um, in terms of understanding the data sources and their limitations. Um, and then once we have results, we present again back to the counties on the results and again, what they represent and what they don't. Um, um, and we do that in two ways. We, we present directly um, to the counties, but we also again put the model results into a dashboard where county stakeholders can manipulate, you know, uh, levers and see if we increase, you know, X by such amount, this would happen to overdose rates. Um, and so when we do that, we present confidence intervals, confidence bands uh, for every estimate. And we have a statement about, you know, the uncertainty uh, of each estimate. Um, so, so I think, I, I think the ways to do that are presenting first on what the model is, before you're doing the simulation, uh, remaining engaged throughout the modeling process and making them partners in the process, presenting results once they're ready and communicating what they can and cannot illustrate, and then being very careful um, in written materials uh, to, to present uncertainty bounds and to present what the data sources are and the limits on the estimates that you're presenting. Thank you so much, Magda fascinating insights into your research. If you'd like to read more about Magda's work, you can find her profile on the New York University website. And if you'd like to find out more about Cypher or you want to subscribe to future episodes of the podcast, go to cypher.ac.uk. Cypher is with an S for sugar. Thank you for listening to our eighth episode, and I hope you'll join us next time. Goodbye. <laughs>